a lot of people looked at me and said, Steve, you might want to try to keep it down a little bit, maybe 20, 25 minutes. I said, please, I don't even get started in 20 or 25 minutes, but I'll try to do better. Just to prove it. <laughs> Let's begin with prayer. Father God, we do thank you, especially that you are the God of glory. Your sovereignty shines in your very creation. And that is some of what I want to share a little bit about today. Father God, I thank you for each and every one here. I thank you for each and every one that would like to be here, not able to at this time. And Father, the families represented and the troubles that was brought up by Chad, that the things that happen in life and uh, the concerns, um, those are very real to us day to day. And Father, we know that even in those circumstances, and especially in those circumstances, that you bring a new perspective. Father, we're to know peace and faith and trust in you. And when that occurs, it's beyond understanding because you supply that in our very time of need. Often you act in our very time of need. And Father, that is the way you do business, and we thank you for that. I just pray that I'm used here today in sharing your word, the word of life and truth that you give us freely, that actually walked among us in the body of Jesus, who was definitely the living word. Everything he said and did and proclaimed became truth. And the very greatest example of that was him hanging on a cross, sacrificing his very life. And part of that in the songs we've already sung, in the words that's already been shared, is a true example of surrendering to your need, your service, and being a part of the kingdom that you truly are establishing now and forever. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, I'm keeping this too. I start out in um, sharing some verses from Isaiah, 40th chapter, 21 through 31. Ten verses, but early in the time of Scripture and those prophets and um, people that were doing the business of God made it clear that God was in His place taking care of all situations when things looked very dim and brought joy in insurmountable circumstances. Isaiah 40, 21, beginning there and ending in 31. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princesses to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground 
Then he blows on them, and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens, who created all these. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. It is in these proclamations of the sovereignty of God from the word of God that helps me realize what is also meant by Paul when he states in Romans chapter 1 concerning the very nature of this creation that God has created, proclaiming the existence of a creator. Romans 1, 18 through 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. And I'm a master of excuses. That gets my attention when it tells me clearly that no, many, no matter how many I can come up with, there's none going to hold any water. I am without excuse. If seeing nature itself proclaims the living God, but I choose to deny that and proclaim that, ah, I can't prove there's a God, and it's done every day, so I choose not to believe in a God. And there's a matter of faith, whether we believe in God or not. If we could see God clearly, as one day we will, faith would not be a part of the issue. Seeing God face to faith, face doesn't require faith. That day will come. Now is the time for faith. Now is the time to get established in exercising that faith, serving in that faith, being a part of a body as you are. I'm preaching to the choir. 
but that's a good thing. We build up one another, we teach one another, we support one another in pain and joy to become one in the body of Christ. As with my personal learning and ideas, we come into contact with concerning Bible study and beliefs. We can soon find that all concerned may not be and not unanimously agree as to the doctrines and interpretations concerning faith issues and the walk of faith. And we choose to follow uh, and we described as problems, as some have described as problems with problems. The path that promotes my own way of thinking is such that faith will not be needed when we are face to face with the living God. That is where the verses that end words that we are without excuse grabs and holds my attention. Eschatology is a word that I really at first looked at and said, huh, what's that mean? In part, the definition I kind of attached and latched on was its theology concerned with death, judgment, and the final destiny of the soul and of humankind. I bring that word up as it was presented in an article written by Mark Deaver in Christianity Today in May 2006. In his defense for the atonement theology entitled Nothing But the Blood, in a paragraph about many splendid atonements concerning different theories concerning Christ's death, on the cross and the atonement debates of modern theologians, his words were, still, why pit these theories against each other and discount, ignore, or diminish biblical language that describes the death of Christ? While a victor may have a moral influence On those for whom he conquered, he may not also may he not also be a substitute. While Christ's example of self-giving love may also defeat our enemies, may be not by the same act, may he not by the same act propagate God's wrath. Each of the theories conveys biblical truth about the atoning work of Christ. I don't doubt that we have more to learn about Christ's death than simply the fact that he died as a substitute for us, bearing our grief and carrying our sorrows. And as Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken by God and by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and all of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. P. 
Peter, for instance, teaches that we should follow Christ's example of suffering that which is good. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He is put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Any biblical account of the atonement must take into account our having been united by Christ, in Christ, to Christ, by faith, adopted and regenerated in him, as those who belong to him, as his temple and his body, we expect the fruit of his spirit to be evident in us. Because of the atonement, we expect a new quality to our lives in him. The atonement is not merely moral influence, but it surely results in moral influence. A Christ who wins victory over the powers of evil, whose death changes us, and whose death propagates God is not only conceivable, it seems to be the Bible's composite presentation. Charles Spurgeon put the point well. It is our duty and our privilege to exhaust our lives for Jesus. We are not to be living specimens of men in fine preservation, but living sacrifices. Those whose lot it is to be consumed. Strong words, but I put righteous words. How am I doing? I still got some time left. Common sense tells us that athletes must train and practice the event so they will be ready to compete well when the time comes. In a similar way, we cannot be successful in our Christian lives if we do not prepare. The middle of the moral dilemma is not the time to realize that we aren't really sure about the right thing to do. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, insists that we train and discipline ourselves so that we will always be ready for anything that comes our way. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through, oh, don't have it all marked. Maybe just the one. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will always provide a way so that you can stand up under it. When we are tempted, we can rest assured that what we are facing is no worse than what other people have faced. And if other people have pressed and passed this test, then so can we. God knows our strengths and weaknesses. He will not allow us to get into situations that cannot be overcome when temptation has a built-in escape route. The most common is the fact that we can always simply say no. But at the same time, this assurance places all responsibility for sin on our own shoulders, not God's. 
God's faithfulness is common, a common Bible theme. 1 Thessalonians 5.24. Taking that into our thoughts, we know that God always provides a path to be faithful to him and following, not through our strength. If we could do it on our strength, we'd be done in the beginning through his strength that he provides in the spirit that he makes available by faith in Christ, who said it and told us he would send a comforter to comfort us, to help us, to take us to a point that we could never get to on our own, denying the chains that once enslaved us and walking free of those chains to a new life, a new mindset, giving burial to our old ways and rising up to a new life that he creates for us. I'll skip a little bit. These were comments that were actually written about giving. But I'm going to replace giving with surrendering and service. We'll use service. Generous service is a grace from God. Service in the worst of times brings great joy because God is placed first in your life. We are called to excel in our service. Be excellent when you serve to God's work. Christ's complete service out of love is a pattern for our service because of our love. Our service is acceptable if the willingness to complete Christ's work motivates our service. God wants no one to serve out of guilt, but only because his heart moves him to serve. God loves a cheerful servant. God will empower you to serve if your heart is connected to his purpose and plan. Service brings blessings and open doors for greater service. Service is an expression of thankfulness to God. Lives are transformed through our service as ministries expand, personal ministries, people you meet on the street, people you work with, your family, especially your family, and this family. And I see it happening, and I'm blessed with that. I thank God for it daily. Do struggles happen? Do disagreements, disappointments happen? Of course, we should expect them. But we should also should expect a way around that God is more than willing to show and make happen. We, we've seen it happen often. And we wonder why the struggles, why the ideas, the things that go on. That is the life we live in. Um, None of us will deny that this life has its troubles. We know them well. We've experienced them. 
but we also should not deny that the very God that allowed the curse to be placed because of sin also has always made a way out to deal with sin. And there is a time coming where sin and death and tears and fear and wickedness will be no more. We hope and pray and wait on that day. We will, as believers, whether Jesus returns in our lifespan or not, we know that he will come to this earth and reestablish the kingdom that was put into his hands by the Father. And the spirit work going on will reveal this, and it does reveal it to our hearts. We see and hope those days. The song we sang this morning, Imagine, I can only imagine, we do imagine, but we take it for truth and a solid explanation of what God is about. I read recently, and this is back from 2006 too, but it was a Legion magazine they sent out and they had, it was actually C.S. Lewis, which I didn't know, participated in one of the wars and so did J.R. Tolkien. Um, And they actually kind of had a club together where they spent time, walked in the woods and shared thoughts and things where, The idea was that C.S. Lewis pretty much put Christianity and thoughts of religion, whichever one, is a myth. And um, in that explanation, when he talked with Tolkien, Tolkien kind of explained it to him, well, if it's a myth, it's the one true myth. And that caught C.S. Lewis's attention. Since that time, C.S. Lewis has mitten written many Christian books, one of them Mere Christianity. I'll try to share this quickly. Clive Staples Lewis has lately become a rock star within the Christian community. A new move based on his books, The Chronicles of Narnia, is a blockbuster hit. This was back in 2006, of course. His books are among the best-selling in Christian literature. This is quite a feat for a reserved British intellectual who has been dead for more than 40 years. As a young man, Lewis was a skeptic who dismissed Christianity as a myth. At age 33, with the help of J.R.R. Tolkien and others, he experienced a spiritual awakening. Afterwards, his creativity helped make him a celebrated champion of Christian belief. The intellectual journey Lewis takes us on in his masterwork of apologetics, mere Christianity, is truly amazing. In it, he sought to explain the doctrines that Catholic and major Protestant denominations could all agree. He drew upon his former skepticisms to help explain Christianity in a common, non-theological way. To begin, Lewis notes a predisposition in people to search for a standard of absolute truth. It seems all people across the cultures and time generally agree that they should should not uh, put themselves first 
and they ought to be honest, fair, unselfish, and courageous. He calls this tendency the law of human nature because everyone knows it's almost instinctively. Lewis then makes a second observation. While people everywhere have a notion that they should behave in these ways, they do not do so themselves. He says, they know the law of human nature, they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. Lewis reasons that just as the laws of physics and mathematics are real, the law of human nature must also be real. It must have been created as part of a universal truth and not by man. He says, I find that I do not exist on my own, that I am under a law, something that is directing the universe and appears to me as a law urging me to do right and making me feel responsible and uncomfortable when I do wrong. He reasons there must be a perfect goodness behind the universe that is interested in what we do. If that perfect goodness exists, it must disapprove of much of our behavior. I think we have to assume, he says, it is like a mind that is like anything else we know. Perhaps that is because it has rules. To Lewis, what perfect goodness that being is what we call God. Lewis believes that in the end, God is our only reassurance, and we have made ourselves his enemy. What we need most is that from which we want to hide our behavior. Once we understand the law of human nature, that there is power behind that law, and that we put ourselves wrong with that power by breaking it, Lewis says we then begin to understand what Christians are saying. If we are free to choose between good and evil, Lewis reasons, then evil must be a genuine possibility. An all-powerful God can surely prevent evil, but he can only do so at the cost of human freedom. Lewis goes on to observe that this powerful being selected a specific group of people and spent hundreds of years hammering into them the kind of God he was and that he cared about their conduct. Those people were the Jews and the Old Testament chronicles that, uh, chronicles the hammering process. Then he says comes the real shock. Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who claims he was always, has always existed, forgave sins, and goes around talking as if he were God. He says he is coming to judge the world at the end of time. What he said was, quite simply, the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. The man told people that their sins were forgiven. However, he never checked with others to whom those sins had wronged. He acted as if he were the primary one offended by our wrongdoing. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, Lewis says, these words were imply that I would, what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. 
Jesus' words make sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded by our sins. Lewis notes, some people may say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. He responds, a man who merely who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, Lewis said. You can spit in him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We know which choice the C.S. Lewis made. To him, the realization was only the mere essence of Christianity. While his many books have been an inspiration to many people over the years, they continue to be an inspiration to those newly acquainted with his work today. With those words, I put an invitation to anyone here that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ personally as Savior to come forward and accept through faith that God is the only answer for a world in need today of his love and care and sovereignty, the peace that brings, I can attest to through a personal experience and a testimony that God does do what God says he'll do in the past, now, and forever. Amen. Steve, and just to... His courage, Father, to get up here and speak your words, Father. I thank you for the, the truth that he spoke this morning. And, uh, Father, I just pray that um, we would apply those words, Father, and that we would be your servants, Father, and um, that you would use us however, however you need to, God, to reach those that don't know you. Father, I thank you um, just for your presence here today and that you'd be with us through the rest of the service. In Jesus' name, amen.